Uh, how many of you are Patriots fans this morning? Raise your hand. There is one, two, maybe three, four, like maybe four or five Patriots fans in the house. Uh, how about Atlanta Falcons fans? Yeah, you bet. We've even got some aren't wearing jerseys over here. Yeah, go Falcons. Well, I want to welcome our podcast listeners this morning. Thank you guys for joining us too. And uh, here on Super Bowl Sunday, I want to kick off my talk. Were you just not listening? So for 27 years that I've been in ministry, every year I do that joke on Super Bowl Sunday, and it never works. But it doesn't stop me. I just keep doing it. I want to kick off my talk by asking you guys to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. And I'm going to meet you there in just a moment. Exodus chapter uh, 33. We've been in this passage of scripture for the last few weeks talking about the stages of revival. Personal revival, church-wide revival, city-wide revival. We've been talking about that. Now I can imagine, in fact when I first started this series I thought to myself, I think the toughest group in our church to convince that the thing that you need most in life is revival. I think the toughest group in the church to convince of that are those of you who would fall in the young to young-ish adulthood category. Young to young-ish adulthood category. Now, I'll let you decide whether you fit into one of those categories, but I'm thinking about people in their 20s and 30s. Life is still out there in front of you. Some of you are single, and you would say to me, listen, the thing I need most in my life is to find Mr. or Mrs. Right. Some of you are focused on building families and, and building homes, and some of you are, are focused on building your careers and your bank accounts, and all of that makes perfect sense. I get that. I mean, I understand that completely. The American dream has always been tantalizing. But I do want you to hear this. I wish someone would have shared this with me when I was in my 20s or 30s, which was just the other day. Just this week, I read the results of a survey by a San Diego State University professor. And the survey revealed that Americans are more depressed now than they have been in decades. This has been a trend for some period of time. College students surveyed were 50% more likely to say that they feel overwhelmed. Adults were more likely to say their sleep was restless, that they had poor appetites, and everything in their life is an effort. All of those are classic psychosomatic symptoms of depression. Interestingly, a young woman by the name of Elizabeth Wurzel wrote a book about this trend all the way back in 1994. And when I read the book, I saved a section of it that, as it turns out, is very relevant to what we're talking about in this series. And I want you, if you're in your 20s, 30s, or if you just would consider yourself young or youngish, I want you to listen to what she wrote. This is very important. She wrote, what is depression if it isn't the most striking, poignant, psychic challenge to the American dream? And in that sense, what is my book if not some miserable indictment of the society that we live in? Not to sound like some beatnik stuck in the Eisenhower era, but the cry of the depressive is a demand for more and better than what this country has to offer at the apex of privilege. 
It is a very loud scream that says that happiness is not about status, is not about a two-car garage, is not about money, beachfront property, degrees from fancy schools, or membership in prestigious clubs. Were it, any, were it any of those things by now, I think that we would be happy. I just want to ask you something. Is it possible that the increasingly depressed culture in which we live is a result of chasing the American dream? Is it possible, those of you who are in that stage of life where you're still chasing the American dream, is it possible that you're chasing a mirage or fool's gold, if you will? Something that just doesn't pay off the way that it was promised it would pay off. A series of sermons that we're in uh, called Catching Fire, what I'm arguing in this series is that the very best thing that could happen to any of us here this morning, the most fulfilling thing, the thing that would lift us out of the deadening doldrums of chasing the American dream, is that the church in Evansville would catch fire and experience revival. And that that spirit of revival would spill over the walls of the church in Evansville and into the city of Evansville, creating a spiritual awakening among the people of this city. It's the most fulfilling thing that could happen to us, to any of us. A few weeks ago, we saw that the first stage of revival is always repentance of idols. And then last week, we talked about the second stage of revival, which is always prayer, like a commitment to prayer. Anytime revival comes, there has always been a commitment to prayer that preceded it. This week and next week, we're going to stay in this second stage of revival. And we're going to look at, we're going to look more closely at prayer and what constitutes revival praying. What should we be praying for? If we're praying for revival, what is it that we should be asking God about if we're praying for revival, whether it's personal revival or church revival? Now, before we look at the passage uh, today, I want to just remind you of what precipitated Exodus chapter 33. And what precipitated it was the idolatry of the people of Israel. While their leader, Moses, was meeting with God at the top of Mount Sinai, the people began to fear that Moses had abandoned them. And so they make for themselves an idol, a golden calf to worship, which was a terrible sin against the Lord. And God judged the people. And about 3,000 people died that day because the wages of sin is always death. But to those who remain, God told Moses, listen, you you guys go on up to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. These people are too sinful. And if I'm If my presence is with these sinful people, it will endanger their lives. So I'm not going to go with you. And when the people heard that, they were terribly dismayed and they repented. And then as you may remember, those of you who've been with us, Moses has a tent that he builds outside the camp of the people and he begins to pray there. And starting in verse 12, we see Moses, we see what Moses prays while he's in that tent, what what he's been interceding for the people of Israel about. And I think in these two verses, you're going to see two things that Moses prays for. We're going to see another one next week. We're just going to concentrate on two this morning. Two things that Moses prays for, that that if we want revival, if you want personal revival, if we want church revival, if we want citywide church revival, we should be praying these two things as well. Let's look at verse 12 
Exodus chapter 33. Moses says, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. Now just stop there for, uh, for a moment because I want you to understand what Moses is building up to here. Moses is saying, look, God, you want me to lead these people to the land that you promised Abraham, but you haven't told me yet whether you're going to come with us or not. You said you weren't, but now I'm praying, are you going to come with us? Are you going to come with us? Are you going to be with me on this? Because I don't really know how to get us from point A to point B. Oh, I know the geography. I just don't know. There's a ton of obstacles along the way, and I don't know how to get past those. There are rivers that are going to block our way. We're going to be in a desert. And by the way, there are people who already live up there in, their, in that land. And we're not going to just waltz in and say, we're here. And they're going to say, great, we've been waiting for you. And just give us the land. That's not going to happen. So I'm going to need some very serious help. Are you in God or are you out? That's essentially what Moses is asking. And then he begins to build up to a request that he's going to make of God. And he says, look, essentially what he's saying is, look, we have a relationship. You have told me that you dig me. I don't know. Maybe that was a 70s word. But he said, you know, we're good. Uh, You've told me that we're good, that you love me, that we have a good relationship. And on that basis, Moses is going to ask something very boldly of God. In fact, he's going to ask between today and next week, he's going to ask three things very boldly of God. Today, we're going to look at two of them. I want you to know that if you have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can be just as bold in your prayers on the basis of that relationship with God. Ask whatever you want. You can be just as bold. I'm not saying God is going to give you exactly what you want. But you can ask. Just like Moses did. And I want you to watch what Moses asks. Verse 13. If you're pleased with me. By the way, did you know that the Lord is pleased with you? If you have a relationship with Christ, do you know that the Lord is pleased with you? Like, I think some of you here this morning probably think to yourselves, man, he hates me. I'm just such a worm. I mean, the things I've done, the things things I did yesterday. Do you understand that if you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that God loves you, that he knows you by name, that you have found favor with him, that he is pleased with you? That's not a message we hear enough in the church, is it? We need to hear this over and over, that God is pleased with you. He likes you. Yeah, he even digs you. You're good. He digs it. He digs you. Hear that. Moses says, if you are pleased with me, and of course the if here is, you know, what's called a first class conditional if. You love hearing that kind of grammar, I know. It's it's like saying, because you are pleased with me. So if because you, you are pleased with me, teach me your ways. So I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Now, it's a little obscure here to, you know, it's not not like right on the surface to understand what Moses is asking for here. So let me just state it, and then I'm going to explain it to you. Moses is asking God. He wants to know the character of God. Moses asks to know the character of God here. 
That's what he means when he says, teach me your ways so that I may know you. Moses is saying, I want you to come with us, God, so that, so that I can know you more intimately. I want to see how you deal with human beings. I want more than just a friendship with you. I want intimacy with you. I want more of you. What are you like? What are the things that you value? Do you recognize, do any of you recognize this longing? This is what you do or what you did when you meet or met Mr. or Mrs. Wright, right? You want to get to know them, don't you? You want more than just saying hello, smiling, whatever. Like you want to get to know them. You want intimacy. You want to experience them at a level that is greater than just mere friendship. And this is what Moses is wanting from God. Call it a divine romance, if you want. Moses is not content with just the reality of God or just the awareness that God is with him. He wants to know him, to understand what makes him tick. What are his values? What's he about? What are his purposes? I think that's why he asks God to remember that these are his people at the end of verse 13. I think, he's, I think he wants to know, is God faithful to his promises? Is he forgiving? Is he long-suffering? He wants to know these things because he wants to continue to find favor with God. He wants to live with the same set of values that God has. And as it relates to this sermon series, this always happens in revival. Whether it's revival in an individual's life or the life of a whole church, this always happens. People begin to want, to hunger for, to thirst for, to pray for a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're not content with the average or the ordinary. Frankly, they come to realize that the American dream just isn't enough. And so they want more of Christ. They want to go deeper because they're convinced that's where everything they really long for is. It's not enough for them to just be a Christian. It's not enough for them to just know that they have eternal life. They want more. One of the psalmists says it uh, this way. This convicted me a number of years ago. Uh, so significantly in my relationship with Christ. Psalmist says it this way in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And this convicted me so much because I recognized that at that place in my life, I was just living with a sense of contentment and I, I wasn't pursuing. I, I, didn't, I, I couldn't say with honesty that my soul panted for God. But this is what revival looks like. It's longing for that. Make my soul pant after you, God. Let me know you like that. Now, I can imagine that to some of you, that, <laughs> that sounds extreme. You're like, you know, you, look, I, I want to G- I, I have a relationship with Jesus. But I don't want to be a Jesus freak or something. I want to be reasonable. Yeah, relationship, yes. But I want to be reasonable about this whole thing. But I got to tell you something. You need to understand this. That if you're really going to come to experience revival, you're going to have to come to grips with Jesus. And you need to know that Jesus forces you to the extreme. There is no reasonable in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Listen to this. The author N.T. Wright, theologian, scholar, author N.T. Wright, says it this way about Jesus. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? 
that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked into our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. For those people and churches who long for revival, it's just not enough to live in the shallow world in between. That's not enough. And so they begin to pray for more of God. They want something better. They want something deeper. They want want more than just the American dream and and a reasonable relationship with Jesus. And so they begin to pray that they too would know him so well that their souls would pant for God like the deer pants for streams of water. And what about God on his end? Like, is he, is this a one-way thing? A one-way romance where Moses wants more of God, but God doesn't want anything more of Moses. That God wants to stay kind of away, shy, doesn't want to reveal himself intimately to Moses. Look at what he says in verse 14. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. The Lord is so pleased with Moses' request. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Like like rest. He's talking physical rest here for the people of Israel from all of their enemies. But for you and for me, he's talking about a sense that I don't have to keep searching for something more. That life has meaning. And I know what that meaning is. And I am content and I feel peace. Because of that, God is willing. If you're praying for revival, be praying for this. God, I want to know you more. Make me hunger and thirst for you. But there's more. Here's the second thing that Moses asks God for. Verse 15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. It's like he didn't, it's like Moses really, it really hasn't registered with Moses that God has said, yes, I'm going to go with you. He says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all of the other people on the face of the earth? Now, again, I think it's a little difficult to see it right on the surface. So again, let me just say it. Moses asks God here that God would manifest his presence by his power, that God would manifest his presence by his power. And let me explain how I arrived at that. Moses reasons that the, that the one thing which distinguishes God's people from all other peoples of the earth is his presence in their midst. If your presence doesn't go up with us, he says, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? So he's saying, he's saying it's your presence in our midst that distinguishes us from everyone else. But how do the people, how do they, how do, how do they understand that it is truly God who is present with them? What is it that makes the rumors run through all of the nations that Israel is God's people? What is it? It's always the power of God. It's God doing stuff on their behalf that only God could do. Now, if you're praying for revival, 
This is what you need to be praying for too, that God's presence in your life would be manifested by his power. That God's presence in the church in Evansville would be manifested by his power, that God's church and God's presence in, in city church would be manifested by his power. Now, why? why? Why was Moses praying for that? Why do we need to be praying for that? Well, as it relates to Moses, first, consider the magnitude of their problems. For, for Moses and the people of Israel, we said it earlier, they're going to face obstacles that are greater than them. They're going to face rivers. How are they going to cross them? And they're going, to, they're going to face a desert. and They're going to have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. Not to mention the enemies that, that they're going to run into all along the way. And Moses is like, don't set us up without your presence. We'll die in the desert of starvation or thirst. And if it's not starvation or thirst, enemy nations are going to destroy us. We need your power if we're going to get to the land. Like the obstacles, man, they're just... They're just too great. But I want you to know that that is as true today as it was then. If we're going to experience revival and spiritual awakening, we need God's power for the same reason, the sheer magnitude of the problem. There are enormous obstacles to a revival or a spiritual awakening in this country. The influence of Christianity in America, for example, is on the decline. In 2007, uh, Pew Research found that about 16% of Americans claimed no religious affiliation. That was in 2007. That number increased in 2015 to 23%. Almost one in four Americans say no religious affiliation. In 1967, the Gallup Company, Another well-respected national polling firm found that about 2% of Americans, 1967, 2% of Americans, or one out of every 50 people, claimed no religious preference. By 2014, that number had grown to 16%, or about one in seven. A religion and sociology professor at Duke University by the name of Mark Chavez says this. He says, these studies show that American religion is in a period of slow decline. None of this decline is happening fast, and levels of religious involvement in the United States continue to remain very high by world standards. But, he says, the signs of decline are unmistakable. The problem is bigger than we can solve. The obstacles are bigger than we can deal with. Christianity is on the decline. Let's face it, we are in societal decay. We now have multiple generations of people who have never seen a stable marriage in their family's history and whose wounds from divorce run deep, so deep that they find ever-increasing ways to numb themselves from the pain. Prosperity has deceived us as a nation into believing that the American dream is what we're longing for. Science has been telling us for 300 years that we're nothing more than a random collection of molecules and that there's no God anywhere in the universe. Our kids are taught this in college, and as a society, we have come to live as if we believe that this is absolutely true. It's called moral relativism. Everyone doing what is right in his or her own eyes. We need the power of God today because the obstacles to revival and spiritual awakening are way too great for mere humans to overcome. We can't make revival happen. We can't change the culture that we live in. We can't force our culture to change. We can't solve these problems on our own. 
So just sheerly because of the, the magnitude of the, of the problems facing us, if, we, if we're praying for revival, we need God's power to manifest himself in our presence. But there's another reason that Moses asks God to manifest his presence through his power. And if you think about it, God's power always authenticates us as God's people. And it would authenticate Moses and the people of Israel as God's people. <clears throat> when God does something that can't be explained by human effort, people take notice, don't they? Like when he parts the Red Sea, when he provides them food and water in the desert where there is no food and water, when he dries up the Jordan River so that they can cross over into the promised land, when the people of Israel knock off Jericho with nothing but trumpets. These are the things that are clearly signs of God's presence among them. And it makes this nation stand up and take notice. Today, we're in no less need of God's authenticating power if we're going to see revival and spiritual awakening. And let me just say that this should be our urgent prayer today, that God's power would be manifested in our lives individually and in our churches. Because the distinctiveness, Moses said that this is what makes us distinct. The distinctiveness of the church in America is gone because the power of God isn't needed to do what we do anymore. We become much like any other institution on earth. We've lost our distinctiveness. How? How did we lose? How have we lost? How have we lost our distinctiveness? Here's how. We have reduced the message of the gospel down to just be good and nice people. Instead of be radically transformed by the power of God. Die so that you can live. We've just said, be nice, be good. We, we have a gospel that I would like to call the gospel of sin management. All we say is, don't sin, don't sin, don't, don't do anything bad. Be good, be nice. But that's not the gospel. <laughs> it's not the gospel. The gospel is be radically transformed by the power of God. Listen to me, Buddhists can be nice. And so can Mormons and Muslims and atheists can be, can be good and nice people. There's nothing distinctive to Christianity about being nice and good. And I want to tell you something. Jesus wasn't crucified because he was saying to everyone in the world, be nice. Nobody crucifies somebody that says, be nice. They crucified Jesus because he was saying, you can't be good. You're sinful. You need a savior and I'm the only way. That's what got him crucified. Try going down to USI or any place else in the city of Evansville and say that. See if you don't get, well, you might not get crucified, but it'll be close. It's the presence of God's power that makes Christianity distinctive. For instance, when the rest of the world can't get along, when blacks and whites are killing each other in the streets, when liberals and conservatives are at each other's throats, when men abuse women and women ridicule men, when management takes advantage of labor and labor resents management, when Americans live in fear of Middle Eastern people and Middle Eastern people live in fear of Americans. The power of God is seen in the local church because it's the one place on the planet where all of those people can coexist and coalesce around the person of Jesus Christ. 
And because of our belief in Christ, we demonstrate what Paul says is the evidence of the power of the Spirit of God. Love for people who are very different. Unity in the midst of diversity. Love manifested in joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. These These are the ways that the power of God is manifested in us. Christianity isn't just about being nice and, and good. It's about the presence of God's spirit in our lives manifested in ways that can only be explained by God. We need God's power to work in ways that can't be explained by anything else but God if there's to be a spiritual awakening in the city of Evansville. We need God to shake us in such a way that the rest of the city of Evansville will ask, what is this? What's going on? Uh, Human beings don't do this kind of stuff. This must be of God. And if you're praying for revival, this is what you need to be praying for. That the power of God would be manifested in your life. That his presence would be seen by his power working through you. What you and I are longing for, those of you in your 20s and your 30s, everybody here who's old enough to have chased the American dream, some some of us got it, some of us may not have, but every one of us can tell you it's a mirage. It is fool's gold. It doesn't pay off. And frankly, it leaves you depressed, disillusioned, and cynical. No, what you and I are longing for and what the city of Evansville is longing for isn't the American dream. We're longing to know God intimately and to know his power manifested in our lives. I want you to understand this morning that God is willing to be known intimately and he's willing to manifest his power in our lives. We saw it just a moment ago when Moses said, I want to know you. I want to know your character. God said, yes, I'll go with you. Notice how he answers Moses when he asks him to manifest his power. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And he is as willing today as he was in Moses' day. What proof do I have of that? Maybe I'm just saying that. What proof do I have that God is still willing to be known intimately and to demonstrate his power in our lives? What proof? What proof? Here it is. When Jesus Christ was born, when the New Testament opened, at the birth of Jesus, it was said of him, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. He's willing, so willing he sent his son to be born, to become a human, to be born, and to live among us. But even more than that, You think that's good? Even more than that, at the cross, God demonstrated his ultimate willingness to be with us by sacrificing his own son, Jesus, so that the separation from God that our sin causes, so that the death that our sin causes could be satisfied, could be paid for, could be bridged once and for all. God is willing to be known 
intimately by us. He's willing to show his power. But you think those two things are great. Listen to this, even more. Three days after dying on the cross, God demonstrates his power in a way that can only be explained by the power of God. When he raises Jesus from the dead so that he can be with us. But you think that's great. There's still more. Jesus ascended into heaven so that he can send the Holy Spirit that the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God could dwell not just with us, but within us. Do you understand that this is a level of intimacy that is available to us that Moses could have never dreamed of? Everything you long for, my friends is available to you by the Spirit of God. And for those of you this morning who have a relationship with God by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. But don't just settle for that. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says it this way, be filled with the Spirit of God. If you want revival, pray for more of God in your life. Pray that his power would be manifested in you. And I can promise you something, that this and only this, will provide for you all that your soul is longing for. And this and only this will lift you out of the deadening doldrums of chasing the American dream. You want revival in your life. You want revival in this church. You want revival in this city. You want a spiritual awakening in this city. Start here, pray. Pray that you would know God more intimately and pray that his power would be manifested in your life. Let's pray. We pray for these things, God. We want to know you more intimately. We will not settle. We do not want to settle just for knowing that we have a relationship with you. We want to know more. Make us hunger and thirst for you. Make our souls pant for you, just as the deer pants for water. Bring revival, Lord. Revive us, Lord. We repent of thinking that the American dream could ever provide meaning and significance and fulfillment to our lives. We understand that you are the subject and the object of life. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, be alive in this place. Show the power of God in this place and in our lives. We don't want to just be good and nice people. We want to be radically transformed people. who have died with you, been buried with you, and been raised again from the dead with you. We want to know you, Christ, the power of the resurrection seen in our lives, the way that we live, the way that we treat other people, the way that we love. Lord, bring that. Bring that here to this place and let the city of Evansville take notice, not of us, but of you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.